Beloved, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12 this morning. And we're going to stand in a moment and we're going to read Romans chapter 12, the entirety of it. And we do so, you know, sometimes people ask, why do we read so much scripture on a Sunday? It's because Paul commanded Timothy to give attention to the public reading of the scripture. And the reason that he did that is because what changes a man's heart, what truly transforms a man or a woman's heart and soul, is not the creative ramblings of a pastor. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God rightly read and proclaimed and believed and exposited. And so, unashamedly, we ground this church on the Word of God. And if we ground this church on the Word of God, then certainly we ought to read it together. Don't you agree? So let's stand together and let's read together Romans chapter 12. And may God open our hearts to receive His Word. This is the Word of God. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes In generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can be seated. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, your word is life. We're so grateful to you that you have given to us your word, that Holy Spirit, you have inspired men throughout the ages to write the very words of the living God so that our souls might be reproved and rebuked and corrected and trained for righteousness. We're grateful that you have given to us a word that is sure and that is certain. We're thankful that in your word we find Christ. In your word we find eternal life. In your word we find certain hope and strength for every single day. We're grateful, Lord God, that in your word are the, is the very... Father, just the very wisdom we need by which to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. We love you and we give you great, great praise and honor, Lord God, for the way that you have shown mercy and grace to wretched sinners like us. Lord, you saved us when we were thoroughly polluted with our sin. When everything about us was enmity and opposition to you. When our thoughts were only evil continually. You sought us out and you saved us by a gospel that is glorious and wonderful. You saved us by the sacrifice of your own son. In Christ you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But you took on human flesh without sin and you gave yourself for us. How do we ever repay you? We can't except to live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving, a life of sacrifice, a life of humility, a life, Lord God, whereby we refuse to be conformed to this world and instead we desire to be transformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you tell us what it looks like. You don't leave us to wonder what it means to walk as Christ walked. Thank you that you've given us this word. Let us receive it this morning as it is, as the very words of God. And let's hear these words, and Father, let them transform us. Let us hear these words, and may they have the weight, Lord God, they should. Thank you again for every grace that you have given. To you alone we lift our eyes, and you alone we hope. Bless us now, Lord, as we look at your word. Fill me with your spirit. Let me preach faithfully and obediently, not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And God, please prepare the hearts of everyone here. Soften them. Make them receptive to your truth today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, beloved, we're getting back this morning to a very important chapter in in, in the book of Romans, right? It's a chapter where Paul is describing for us the very characteristics in the marks of somebody who's truly an authentic Christian, right? And his premise is this. His premise that underlines everything that he writes to us here in chapter 12 is that for someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin and of Satan, for somebody that has been delivered from this present evil age, by the rich mercy and the saving love of God, that there has been a decisive change in who we are, right? There's been a decisive 
transformation and change in what we love and in how we act and in what we desire and the very motivation of our lives. We are essentially different from everyone in this world that does not know Christ, right? We no longer live for ourselves. We live for the glory of God. And Paul's premise, the, the binding truth of God's word is that our lives are not what they once were and they cannot be. And here's why. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. And the old has passed away, right? And the new has come. And so two weeks ago, you know, as we began looking at this section, we saw the chief and the essential mark of an authentic Christian. The very first one is this, is that he or she will have a genuine and a growing love for the Lord, right? That's what marks us. We will have a genuine and a growing love for the Lord. Now, here's the deal. We talked about this. That love for the Lord, it won't be perfected in this lifetime, right? It can't be. It will be perfected when we're glorified and we see Christ face to face. It's not perfected in this lifetime, but nevertheless, that love will be real, it will be true, and it will be genuine, correct? It'll be the very evidence that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be growing in our love for the Lord because somebody who has been loved by God from before the foundation of the world, right? And somebody who has been purchased from the slave market of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ and someone for whom Christ has stood condemned in his or her place and borne the wrath of God on the cross, whose every sin has been atoned for, who's been raised from spiritual death to walk in the newness of life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, somebody who has been granted repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That person, by very definition, must love the Lord who has loved them first, right? Who saved them by truth. Who has, who has saved, you know, we need to love him with a genuine love. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say this. You remember this, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22. A very pointed statement. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The foundational characteristic of somebody who's a Christian is that you love Christ. You love the Lord. And loving the Lord is a matter of more than just lip service, right? It demands all that we are. We saw that last week or two weeks ago, right? We, we must love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with everything that is in us. Loving Christ is not just an aspect of our life. It is the whole of our lives, right? A genuine and growing love for the Lord as he has revealed himself in his holy word is the indispensable and distinguishing mark of the true believer. You can say whatever you want, but if you don't love Christ, you're not a Christian. It's what sets us apart from a world that is coldly indifferent, that is hostile, openly hostile to God. That's the first thing. Let your love for the Lord be genuine. But here, Paul tells us that the consequence of a genuine love for God is this. It's that we will abhor what is evil and will hold fast to what is good. In fact, I want you to see something here that is not obvious in the English, okay? This sentence is really two participle phrases in the Greek, essentially describing one of the fundamental ways in which we love the Lord, right? We looked at several of them two weeks ago, how it is that we love the Lord, how that's reflected in our lives. And here, Paul gives us specifically an essential aspect 
of what it means to love the Lord. In fact, the entire verse literally reads, let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. In other words, one of the ways that we demonstrate a true love for God is by abhorring evil, by hating it, and by clinging to that which God says is good. And the psalmist makes that plain for us in Psalm 97 and verse 10, where he says this, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. The Lord God proclaimed to the people, to his people in the days of the prophet Amos. He said in Amos 15, or 5, I mean, Amos 5, verses 14 and 15, he said this. He said, seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Proverbs 14, verse 22, counsels us, saying, Do they not go astray who devise evil? In other words, all those who devise evil go astray. Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. And so an essential aspect of knowing and loving God in truth, beloved, is a growing hatred for evil and a clinging to what is good. And so what I want us to do this morning is this. I want us to, to, to really to get everything, to draw every ounce of spiritual life we can from that statement. And so I want us to consider that statement, Paul's statement here, his command to abhor evil and, 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 and hold fast to what is good. I want us to think about this in a clear and a logical way, and I want to do it under five propositional statements, okay? I've got five propositional statements that we're going to work through this morning. And the first one is this. Number one is, good and evil are objective realities that are exclusively defined by God. Good and evil are objective realities. And they're exclusively defined by God. Now you might say, brother, that's an obvious one. I mean, that's, that's so obvious it goes without saying. But is it? Is it really? Because I would say to you that much of the confusion and much of the chaos of the modern church and much of the instability and the weakness of many professing Christians can be directly traced to a failure to understand and accept this fundamental proposition. Good and evil, listen to me, are not determined by the will of the majority. It's not up for a vote. Good and evil... It's not determined by what seems good to us or acceptable to us or reasonable to us. It is not defined by how we feel about something. It's not even defined by a government or a society's ability to enforce its view of good and evil by force. The holy God alone defines what is good and evil. His definition of good and evil does not change with the times. It does not change with different cultures, nor is it subject to redefinition by the theories of scientists, of politicians, or by the new philosophical perspectives of the debaters of this age. God's Word defines good and evil and not us. We can't, anyway. How could we? corrupt as we are by sin from birth. How could we define good and evil? More than that, here's why. Isaiah says, writes in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, these words. If you're a Wednesday night person, this will be familiar to you. All flesh is grass, 
And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. We're not eternal. We have not always been. We have not forever existed. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our Lord, what? Stands forever. The problem in our society... Beloved, hear me now. The problem in our society and in many of our churches is that they are marked by a, not marked by a faithfulness to God's word, but by moral and spiritual relativism. Right? They reject the rock of God's word. They reject absolute truth. They blur the lines between good and, and evil. Between right and wrong. Saying that truth can be defined by the culture or truth can be defined by the individual. Like you can have your own truth, right? Speak your truth. I got a better idea. How about be quiet and learn the truth? Well, the enemy of our souls is always, he's always trying to get us to loosen our grip on good and become more tolerant of what is evil. That's what he does. He whispers to us. You know this, you hear it through his minions. He whispers, you know what? You need to be more accepting. Don't be so judgmental. Who do you think you are? Goody two-shoes. Holy roller. You need to be more accepting. You need to be more tolerant. I'm going to tell you what. That's a recipe for spiritual anarchy. I want you to think with me for just a moment how it is that in our society, evil has become disguised as good, even redefined as being loving. I want you to think about this with me. Because fallen mankind is exceedingly and remarkably and destructively adept at confusing and obscuring the difference between good and evil. How, for instance, have we gotten to the point in our culture when we have dedicated an entire month to LGBTQIA+, to pride, to celebrating sexual immorality and perversity, the very sin that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 1 with God giving a people over to their depravity. How have we done that? How have we gotten to the place where Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 could actually be the banner over our society and the banner over many churches? You know these words, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. How have we gotten to the place where homosexuals are put forth by supposedly Christian organizations like the Gospel Coalition as the authorities on sexual ethics? How does that happen? How is it we've come to a place where Drag Queen Story Hour is a real thing and not like just some farcical joke? I'll tell you how it happens. Here's how evil becomes normal, beloved, in five incremental steps. Here's how it happens. That which is evil goes first from being unthinkable to being considered radical. Just only the few do it. It used to be unthinkable, but there's just a few people that do that. And so it's, you know, it's no longer unthinkable. It's just very strange. It's radical. It's strange. But, you know, then it moves from being radical to being acceptable. Well, it's not that bad. I can, I can deal with it. It's not that bad. We can tolerate it. It's not that bad. It's not ideal, but it's not that bad. Then it moves from being acceptable to being sensible. 
That just kind of makes sense. We should expect this. This is normal. Then it goes from being sensible to being popular, to being the opportunity for virtue signaling. And then the last step is it goes from being popular to being policy. Just look at our own nation. Just look at our own nation. Beloved, how do we refuse to be swept into the whirlpool of moral relativism that defines our culture? How do we hate evil and hold fast to what is good? Well, the first thing that we need to do is define evil. And the word that Paul uses here in this text, that the Holy Spirit inspires him to use, is the Greek word poneros. Poneros. It's a word that describes what is corrupted. That describes what is morally wicked. That describes what is ethically polluted. That's full of harm or destruction. Something that is calamitous. Something that's diseased. Something that is grievous to God. Evil's not a light thing. Are you hearing me? It's not a light thing. It's an apt word, in fact, to describe all the sin that corrupts humanity and renders us children of wrath. It's an apt word to describe the father of sin, who is Satan. It's an apt word for the source of sin, which is false doctrine. Really? Yeah, really. Do you remember what the first question was in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? It's an apt word for the indoctrination of this world and the false religious beliefs that keep souls in bondage, that promise life and freedom, but only result in death. The world in sin is awash in evil. And listen to me, can I tell you something? I want to say this to you from my heart. It does no good to try to define and distinguish, you know, levels of evil and levels of sin. And that's just that, you know what that is? That's philosophical foolishness. All sin is evil. There's not some people that are sinners and then others that are wicked and then others that are evil. No, everybody apart from Christ is evil. Period. Every philosophy that is not the gospel is evil. Every form of teaching that is not the word of God. Listen to me. It is evil. It's not authorized by God. It does not have God as the center. It does not magnify and glorify and honor the holy God. It's not neutral. It's evil. By contrast, the word that the Holy Spirit gives to Paul to use for good here is the word agathos. It means it, it speaks of that which is morally sound, something that is spiritually health and life-giving. It speaks of that which is upright and virtuous and excellent, something that is qualitatively good, that it's enduring in its worth and in its value. Good is that which is in keeping with the good and the acceptable in the moral will of God, right? Like we talked about back in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Good is what leads to eternal life. Good is what leads to divine blessing. Good is what satisfies the human soul. Good is what leads to a clean conscience, what equips us to bring forth the fruit of a pleasing life before God. And understanding that distinction, the true distinction between good and evil, listen, understanding that distinction is necessary, absolutely, undeniably necessary for us for this reason. For number two in my list of propositions, it's because God is holy. And because God is holy, he must hate what is evil and love what is good. 
He must hate what is evil and love what is good because he's holy. In other words, listen to me. That command that Paul gives us here to be abhorring evil and to be holding fast to what is good, it's not inconsequential. It's not insignificant. It's not just a small one that if we ignore it, it's no big deal. It's not trivial and it's not frivolous. Because that distinction, the distinction between good and evil, is rooted in a right understanding of the holiness of God. Are you with me? I want to say something to you. Listen, God's love, as some people think, does not negate His holiness or His expectation of holiness in His people. I'm going to say that again. God's love, God's love, as some people think, does not negate His holiness, nor does it negate His expectation of holiness in His people. In fact, it is God's love that was the very motivation for Him to send the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be made holy and blameless before Him. I want you to think with me for a moment about the holiness of God. Beloved, God's holiness is essential to His character, isn't it? Isn't it? Isaiah, right? The, the, the seraphim around the throne, they, they, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Revelation chapter 4, they're, they're praising the Lord and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see any of the attributes or characters of God raised to the third power. Nowhere. We never read, love, love, love is God. We never read, justice, justice, justice is God. We never hear, grace, grace, grace is God. Or mercy, mercy, mercy is God. But beloved, we hear, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the God of absolute, total, utter purity and righteousness. And there is no evil to be found in him at all. First Samuel chapter two, verse twenty-two, or first two, I mean, the words of, of, of Hannah, who says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Apostle John said, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that we've heard from Christ and we proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is holy. And because He is, He must hate evil and love good. At the very core, listen, God hates evil, beloved, because it is an attack on His sovereign glory and His goodness. It's an attack on His sovereign right to rule His people. It's an attack on everything that he created and said, this is good, very good. It ignores God. It rejects God. It devalues the Lord and makes men to love and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It defiles and pollutes what God has made. Evil makes those who are made in the image of God to trade the dignity. Listen to me now. To trade the dignity of being made in the image, in God's image. For impurity and for dishonor. That's what we do when we sin. That's what mankind does when it sins. We trade the dignity of being made in the image of God for impurity and dishonor. It makes men to act like sensual beasts. To, to defile themselves, to reject authority, to become like unreasoning animals to be led by their instincts to satisfy their fleshly lusts and to glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things that's why god hates evil 
because evil leads to destruction. In Proverbs, we get a very good description, a very clear description of the kinds of things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16, we read these words. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven, seven that are an abomination to Him. An abomination. Haughty eyes. Arrogance, pride, boasting, right? Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness. I'm sorry, a lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that defies his wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. David tells us in Psalm 11, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul, listen to me, hates the wicked. Well, God doesn't hate anybody. Yes, God does. God hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. God hates every evil way of man. Moreover, you know what he hates? He hates hypocritical religion. You remember the words, his holy words to the prophet Isaiah. He says, when you come to appear before me, begin this Isaiah 1, starting in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The Lord pronounces a woe. He pronounces a curse on those who pervert and confound the difference between good and evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is exactly what we're seeing in many churches today, in many professing Christians in our godless culture, not just in this country, but around the world. People treat evil lightly. They treat it with flippancy. But make no mistake that everyone will stand before God and give an account for the deeds that are done in our bodies, whether good or evil. God hates evil because it's sin and and, and evil that brings infinite misery and death upon mankind. It was God's hatred of sin and His love for what's good, His great love and His mercy and His justice and His determination to save and deliver His chosen people from this present evil age that moved him to send his son who appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus hated sin. He despised the thought of being made sin. In Gethsemane, when he cried out, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He cried out, recoiling as much from the thought of becoming sin for us as the thought of his suffering God's wrath on the cross that sin demands. God is not dispassionate about evil. 
He cannot be dispassionate about that which required the sacrifice of his only son so that sinners could be saved. He cannot look upon evil with approval. He cannot treat evil with indifference. He hates it and he will eternally punish all evildoers, period. That's real. Those are real words. That's not an empty threat. You're familiar with those empty threats, right? You sometimes use them on your kids. If you don't do that, I'm going to lock you in your room for the rest of your life. No, you're not. And they know that. That has no power whatsoever. You better do that or I'm going to kill you. No, you're not. They know it. They know it. But you better believe that when God says, I will punish all evildoers and I will pour out my righteous wrath upon all those who reject me. But you better take that to the bank. That's not an empty threat from God. That's the facts. He hates what's evil, but he loves what's good, right? He loves his son. He loves his son in whom he's well pleased, right? He loves those who have been redeemed by Christ's blood and who are clothed with his righteousness. He loves those true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. He loves righteousness. God loves his word. He he loves the true gospel. He loves sound doctrine. He loves the faith that was once delivered to the saints. He loves what's upright and excellent. He loves that which gives life. He he loves humility and repentance on the part of his people. He loves justice and mercy. He loves forgiveness. He loves faith and faithfulness. He loves peace. He loves truth and integrity. He loves kindness and generosity. He loves purity and holiness. God loves his own character. He loves his own character reproduced in those who are his children. He loves himself. He loves his character and he loves his son who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God hates evil, but he loves good. And number three, if we love God, we therefore must hate what he hates and love what he loves. If we love God, we must hate what he hates and love what he loves, right? You know this. You know this to be true. This it just makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, if we're the children of God and we love our Father in heaven and our Savior who is Christ, then it just makes sense that those things that oppose him, that he hates, we will hate. And those things that he love, that he loves, we will love, right? I mean, you do that in, 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 in earthly relationships. When you are a friend with somebody, like whoever's their enemy is your enemy. And whoever's their buddy is your buddy, right? When you get married, right? We were talking about this with the Ugandan pastors. Like when you get married, your bride's family becomes your family. And your family becomes her family. There's not a division there, right? We're familiar with this idea. If we really love the Lord, then, then we've got to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. So we've got to be growing in our discernment of those two things. Illuminated by the Word of God, we've got to be able to distinguish between the two, between, you know, between evil and good. Because genuine love for God demands that we love what God loves and hate what God hates. So what does it mean to be abhorring evil? What's that idea there? That's a word abhorring that only appears in the New Testament right here. Paul make, actually makes this up. This is, a, this is an invented word by Paul. But now it's in the Greek lexicon. He's a little like, you know, Shakespeare, or, you know, Hemingway before their time. He actually made this word up. And it is now part of the Greek language. Koine Greek. It's a very strong and visceral word. It's the kind of like a gut punch word. You know what I mean? 
And what it means is this. It describes the reaction that we should have to evil. And the, the reaction is this. It should be one of utter loathing, of an intense dislike and aversion to it. A deep hatred of it, this disgust and this revulsion. It, it describes really an intense horror at evil and sin, a complete intolerance for it, a desire to be rid of it. In other words, evil is something we've got to passionately hate. We've got to despise the way it attacks God's glory and destroys the dignity of man. It's not the lighthearted rejection of evil that's so common in our world or, or you know, the joking about evil or, or just blind indifference to it. It's an intense hatred of it. Adam Clark says, believers should hate sin as you would hate the hell to which it leads. You should hate sin as you would hate the hell to which it leads. There could be no compromise, beloved, with evil. Instead, as those who love God, we are to be clinging to that which is good. In fact, Paul uses a word here, a form of this phrase, hold fast, to describe the union of marriage in Ephesians 5. And so he's getting at here as he's saying, look, we're to be married to good. We're to be inseparably joined to it. The idea is to be to be permanently glued to what is good. To cling to good with everything that we're worth, right? To, 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 to have this permanent connection that can't be broken. We're to cleave to the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. That ought to be the atmosphere in which we, we live and the, the, the air that we breathe. Holding fast to what is good. Well, what is good? What is the good to which Paul is referring here? What is good? Well, what is good is God. Right? What is good is Christ. What is good is the Holy Spirit. What is good is the Word of God. What is good is the shepherding hand of the Lord. What is good is the will of God. What is good is the gospel. It's literally good news, right? What is good is sound doctrine. How do you know? How do you know what sound doctrine is? I'll give you, I'll give you a good little hint. That which humbles man and exalts Christ and promotes holiness in heart and life and emphasizes eternity so that we aren't carried about and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that's sound doctrine. I'll say it again. That which, that which humbles man and exalts Christ, that promotes holiness in heart and life, that emphasizes eternity so that we're not carried about and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that's sound doctrine. If you come away from some doctrine and it causes you to think much of yourself and less of God, you've been duped. If you come away from some doctrine that falsely elevates one member of the Trinity over the other, that's false doctrine. If you come away from some teaching that does not lead to holiness and self-denial and dying to yourself, but rather justifies greed under the banner of blessing, that's false doctrine. If you come away from a teaching where the authority is the preacher, where he is highly exalted, and not Christ, and not the Father, and not the work of the Spirit, then you've been sitting under false doctrine. God hates it. So should we. We should love sound doctrine. 
Because sound doctrine leads to good works of obedience and to treasuring our union with Christ. It leads to that which is morally pure and pleasing to God. In fact, that's one of the defining marks of a Christian. Because really, number four, the heart of these words is just a call to be holy as God is holy. That's really what this is. When Paul says, hey, be abhorring evil and be holding fast to what is good, what he's really saying there is, look, be holy as God is holy. Be holy as God is holy. We got, we got to make sure we don't understand this as a means, as a, as a matter of just behavior modification. That's not what this is. If you read this text and you come away thinking, okay, I've got to modify my behavior in order to win some merit with God, you've missed the point. Your merit with God is in Christ alone, right? Right? You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, correct? You've been born again by the Spirit of God, yes? Then what that leads to, or what it ought to lead to, is a life of being holy as God is holy, right? It's not a matter of behavior modifications. It's living in a manner, living out from a heart of love to God what He has made us to be and what's pleasing in His sight, right? And in fact, there's no ability to obey this command apart from being born again. Do you, do you understand that? Are you with me on that, beloved? There's no way to do it. There's no way to do it. Naturally, we love darkness and we love sin. Naturally, we love evil and we hate good. And some people have a hard time admitting that or, 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 or believing that. Well, I would say to you, read Romans chapter 3 yet again. Or simply just take the words, for instance, of John 3, beginning in verse 19 to heart. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that's Christ, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does that mean? It means this. It means those, someone that, 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 that does what is true, that does what is right, that does what is good and just. They come to the light so that you, so that it may be seen that the reason that they do those works is because they are in God, because they have been born again by the living God. Naturally, we do not love good and hate evil. It's the exact opposite. And that's why God's got to intervene. Praise God he has, right? And if in Ezekiel chapter 36, we read the great I wills of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God gives us the new heart to hate evil and to love good and to walk in holiness with the Lord, right? And that's why Peter tells us as obedient children, look, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, how can you be holy if you can't discern between good and evil? Right? You can't be. God has identified himself with us. He's put his name upon us. He's made us his own by his mercy and his grace. And he's worthy of holy children, no? Right? He's worthy of holy children, isn't he? Like, think about you, parent. You want your child to be obedient. Why? So you're not embarrassed by them, correct? Correct? Isn't that true? 
I mean, look, we could say a lot of things. Yes, because I love them. And yes, because I want good for them and everything else. But there is that part in us that's like, I don't want to be embarrassed by my kids, right? Right? That's why if you have that one kid that's like the show-off kid, then when he's like seven, you want to stick him in a cage till he's about 20. Don't you? Because you're always afraid of what he's going to do in front of people. And you're like, oh man, this is going to be bad, right? And you can't put a muzzle on him because that's not, you know, culturally acceptable in the United States. God desires holiness in us. So we properly represent him as his people, right? So we properly represent him as his people. And that means increasingly discerning good from evil and rejecting that which is an affront to the holiness of God, rejecting the world system that does not know or honor or worship the Almighty, and holding fast to what is good. It means a life of continuing and prop repentance of sin and continually turning away from that which displeases God and that does not reflect the image of his dear son and pursuing his likeness, right? That's what it looks like practically to abhor evil and to love good, cling to good. But listen now, holiness doesn't mean sinless perfection. Now, when I, hear, when I say that, if you immediately hear that and go, good, I don't have to worry about how I live, then you haven't understood grace. But if you're a faithful Christian, as the vast majority of you are, listen, when you hear that, you realize, look, none of us can be sinlessly perfect in this life, Correct? Correct? Look, there's not an age that you get to where you don't sin anymore, okay? The power to commit the sin that you love in your heart maybe dissipates, but the thought of the sin still remains, correct? You with me? That's why there's like, no offense, little old ladies, but there are people in churches, little older ladies, older ladies, sorry. Um, there are people in churches that think there's a certain age that you get to, and like all of a sudden, boop, you no longer sin. <laughs> Oh boy, spend some time with some older people, right? It's not true. It's not true. The older ladies will testify to that. So the older men, if they're in Christ, right? But what it does mean is this. It means a life of increasing obedience to God's commandments and of conformity to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It means a growing life of loving what God loves and hating what God's hate and increasingly discerning good from evil. That's, that's what it means, Okay? A life of prompt repentance. Moreover, listen, holiness requires effort. It requires effort. That's where the whole let go and let God crowd gets it wrong. D.A. Carson rightly reminds us of the effort in being holy as he is holy. He said this, people do not drift toward holiness. Isn't that true? People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness or prayer or obedience to Scripture or faith or delight in the Lord. Instead, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. And we slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. He's right, isn't he? You would agree with him, wouldn't you? Beloved, let us not be so deceived. We've got to grieve and repent over the sin that still remains in our lives. Not turn a blind eye to it. There's a reason when Paul got older, when he got almost to the end of his life, he could say, this, this saying is true and it's worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's not that Paul became 
an even more wretched sinner after he got saved. By the grace of God, I have, I have sinned to the max. That's no, that's not what he's saying. It says he grew in holiness. He realized just what a sinner he really was. How much sin he still had to fight. Right? Like we read in Romans 7. We've got to be forsaking sin and embracing obedience. We've got to grieve and pray, beloved, and fearlessly rebuke the sin that's in our culture. Not just, not just go, I can't stand, I can't believe people are like that. I can't believe that they would do that. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to let them run headlong into hell? Are you going to actually say something? Are you going to speak the truth to them in love? That doesn't mean inoffensively because the gospel is an offense. But are you going to speak to them from a heart that says, you are on your way to hell and I want you to know Christ and be saved. Well, you're not going to do it, listen to me, if you don't hate evil and love good. You're not going to do it. Because you're not going to hate evil in your own life. And you're not going to love good in your own life. And you're not going to be putting sin to death in your whole life. And so you're going to feel like a hypocrite. And so when you have the opportunity to speak to someone who is running headlong into hell, you're not going to say anything because you're going to feel convicted that you're a hypocrite. And who are you to speak? And so you're not going to speak the only truth that can turn them from death to life. You hearing me? That's why this is important. J.C. Ryle says, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. Oh, wow. Wow. I've never heard holiness described in that way before. Not until Ryle. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God and hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. A holy person, he says, will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. He will pursue meekness, patience, gentleness, self-control in word and deed, self-denial, love, kindness, mercy, purity of heart, fear of God, humility and faithfulness in all of his responsibilities. A holy person will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on the earth with a very loose hand. Now, when I ask you something, I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with God. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Does it describe me? I've got to ask myself that question. Does it describe me? But I want you to understand, when I'm standing up here preaching this to you, I'm not just preaching this to you, I'm preaching this to me. I live in this culture just like you do. And the temptation to go soft on evil... And not to pursue good is just as real with me as it is with you. Does that description that Ryle made, does it describe you? I'm going to read it again to you because I know some of you weren't listening. You weren't thinking I was going to ask a question based on what I was reading. And so you're just kind of like writing down your notes. I saw some of you like, you know, trying to catch up. I want you to hear these words again. Just listen to them. Put your pencil down and listen. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. Hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. A holy person will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. He will pursue meekness, patience, gentleness, self-control in word and deed, love kindness, mercy, purity of heart, fear of God, humility, and 
faithfulness in all his responsibilities. A holy person will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on the earth with a very loose hand. Does that describe you? If you're sitting there and you're going, not really. Not, not really, not completely. I mean, kind of, but not like, well, you know, I never really thought about it. Then this is your time to think about it. And this is your time this morning to repent. And to set your feet concretely, 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 however you say that, to set your feet steadfastly upon this command. Because holiness at its core, beloved, is a matter of the heart. Isn't it? Isn't it? What drives holiness, what drives the desire to live in a manner that's pleasing to God and to hate evil and love what's good is a full-orbed love for Christ that we talked about two weeks ago, isn't it? Isn't it? What's uppermost in your heart and your mind and your affections will find expression in your lips and in your limbs. And should we not love God enough, the holy God who's forged the way of eternal life for us, who has taken us from our darkness of, from the darkness of our sin and transformed us and made us his children and called us to bear his image, should we not love him enough to be holy as he is holy? Shouldn't we? And that command to be holy as he is holy, look, it demands that we confront the reality that so often we take sin too lightly, don't we? Don't we? Hey, don't let the cat have your tongue right now. Be honest. Don't you often take sin lightly? Especially when you commit it. Right? Now, when somebody else commits it against you, you can, you can specify every offense and, and every subpoint and everything else, right? Like you can write a document worthy of a lawyer when somebody sins against you. Correct? But with our sin, we often take it too lightly. We make jokes about evil. We make it the fodder for humor. Listen to me. That can't be. That can't be. We need to stop making light of sin like it's something funny. It's not. It's not. We can't make light of that which God hates. We can't turn a blind eye to or rename the sin that still remains in us and that masters this world because to do so is to fail to regard it with the seriousness that God does. we got a war against it in our own lives. We've got a war against it in the lives of those whom we know and love. We've got to boldly and patiently and unashamedly speak against evil in this culture and speak for what God says is good, beginning with the gospel. We must strive for holiness. The writer of Hebrews says we must strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. And so therefore, the last thing is this. These words must lead us to a serious self-examination. These words must lead us to serious self-examination, shouldn't they? Like, here's the point. This is not just a, just a oh, here's Paul, he's giving us a list of things. Here's this thing I'm going to throw in there. Not really important, but, you know, I have to get this out. It's part of the curriculum. No. I mean, this needs to lead to serious self-examination because here's why. It's impossible to hate evil and hold fast to what is good. It's impossible to confront the sin in our society if we turn a blind eye to sin in our own lives, right? If we, if we give place to what Jerry Bridges, God bless him, he wrote an entire book to address, a book he entitled Respectable Sins. In other words, sins that go on in the church, sins that go on in Christian's life that we ignore and we count as respectable. Respectable people commit those sins. When you read the book, he talks about such things as 
Ingratitude. That's a sin. Or worry. That's a sin. Or frustration. Or discontentment. He talks about pride, selfishness, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, favoritism, sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, a lack of self-control, envy, jealousy, right? All of them respectable sins, but in the eyes of God, abhorrent ones. You hearing me? Just in that list, there is much for serious contemplation. Isn't there? Much for serious confession and repentance for any true Christian, including the preacher. If we're going to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good, we, we, need to, we need to repent of even respectable sins in our lives, right? Right? In fact, that's probably where we need to start the war. We've got to ask ourselves and be honest. How are we allowing evil a foothold into our lives? I was thinking about this as we were coming back from Uganda. You know, we spent like six hours on one plane and 14 and a half on another. Yeah, you're right, right? But, you know, when you're on there, they got this screen that's in front of you and little earphones and, you know, oh, there's new movies that are out and there's TV shows that you can watch and there's podcasts you can listen to and there's all this stuff, right, that you can entertain yourself with. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying to find something to watch after I've just studied this text, right? And I'm like, well, my entertainment options are exceedingly limited here, right? Like pretty much all I could watch were like documentaries, you know? And there are a couple of movies here or there that have really good themes, you know, but not much. Think about the things we take in, beloved. Think about the suggestions of the cultures that we, of the culture that we toy with in our minds. Think about what we find entertaining, the music, the movies, the books we read, right? The philosophies and the ideas and the ways of this culture that desire to seduce us, right? We need to think seriously about the way that we engage social media. I know I say that all the time. I say it because I'm not sure you hear it. We've got to think seriously about it. How many times do we say to ourselves, really, well, I know I shouldn't do this, Sometimes we even say it out loud to somebody else. I shouldn't do this, but then we do it, right? How many times, you know, we, we, we may think to ourselves, look, I, look, listen, brother, I hear where you're coming from, but I refrain from the major sins of our culture. Good. You should. I refrain from the major sins of our culture, but are we entertained by them? Are we entertained by them? Do we tolerate a little evil and think it's going to have no effect? I can watch this movie because I'm walking so closely with Jesus. I know it depicts things that God detests. I know its storyline is about greed and avarice. But me and Jesus, we're just like this. It's not going to affect me. Maybe if you and Jesus were just like this, you wouldn't watch that show. You ever think about that? If you and Jesus were just like this, you wouldn't listen to that rapper. Or that female singer that dresses like she's in a lingerie magazine and sings about detestable things. Oh, but it won't affect me. I just like the beat. And yet you know every single word. But the word of God, you don't know like that. Oh, now you're, you're meddling in my life. No, I'm, I'm speaking to you the truth. No, I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to me. When we become numb to evil, 
When we stop being shocked by it, listen, we're in trouble. Are you hearing me? There's a real danger here. You know, we see violence and adultery, homosexuality, trans, transgenderism, wickedness, hatred, violence, revenge. We see it portrayed so much in various media that we're no longer shocked by it. We're not numbed by the depravity around us and we become somewhat immune to it. It's not that we approve of evil deeds. But we don't really hate them either. We're just kind of in limbo. And that's the danger. And here's why. I want you to listen to me when I say this. Put your pencil down and hear this. By tolerating a little evil, only now and then, or by enjoying it vicariously through entertainment, or by trying to master our exposure to it, all we are doing is making ourselves comfortable with evil in small doses. And by building up a tolerance to evil and allowing ourselves to indulge our fleshly desires only a little, not like we were before we were saved, man, like we've really narrowed it down. By doing that, listen to me, we only train ourselves for disobedience. We've got to take seriously what do we allow access to our minds and our hearts. That's why Paul commands us in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. And it's a command for our own good. What's true, what's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think on those things. Why? Because sin doesn't need any help in its war against us. So don't give him any help. Don't give sin any help. we got to take arms against it. And one of the ways that we do that is to keep our minds and our hearts laser focused on that which is good. We love righteousness. We love the things of God. We delight what pleases him and what gives him glory and praise. We don't cut corners. We do what's pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, I can say it no better, no better than Paul did in his epistle to the Ephesians. People will sometimes come to me and say, how do I know how I'm supposed to live? How do I really get, like, I want, I need practical instruction. Like, I hear what you're saying, but give me some practical instruction. As if, like, read the word and pray and worship and hold yourself accountable to other people isn't, like, you know, practical. But people say, like, I need, I need, like, give me a roadmap to follow. Okay, I'll give you one. Here it is. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Turn there with me. Turn, turn. In, in, in the scripture to, to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to read this with me. I want you to look at these words with me, okay? Look what Paul writes here. Start in verse 17. He says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't walk like you once walked in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which is which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, I don't want you to be like the Gentiles anymore. Don't act like you used to act. 
Because that's not who you are anymore. You're now in Christ. You've been renewed. This is what you've learned from Jesus. So walk it out. And then he tells us, starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Quit being a liar. Tell the truth. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see that? It's not only, it's not just don't steal anymore, but actually work hard so that you might be able to give to someone who's in need something that they need, rather than continuing in the pattern that you used to continue, that you used to be in, where you stole from those who had. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see the pattern here? Abhorring evil, holding fast to good. Do you see it? Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. That's all the abhorring evil, right? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, world, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to even think, to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. It, therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and with, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let that passage be your guide. Submit yourselves to the words of the Lord and cultivate a growing hatred and rejection of evil and a growing love for good. Treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Treasure He whom you've learned. He's the very epitome of good and He's the antithesis of evil. He's our Savior and He's our standard. Stick close to Him and learn from Him. Augustine said, It is good for me to stick close to my God and to stick close to God forever is the sum of our good. Amen. 
In other words, don't hear these words merely as a call to morality or behavior modification. Hear them as a call to draw near to the Lord. He's the only true good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. It's one of the marks of a genuine Christian. It's one of the marks of a lover of God. Does it mark you? If the Lord's been speaking to you this morning through His Word and through the words of His servant about the evil that you've been tolerating in your life and the good to which you ought to cling that you haven't been clinging, can I tell you what? Listen to me. Now is the time for you to repent, not tomorrow or the day after. Right now. Right now. Now is the time for you to repent, to ask His forgiveness, to make a concrete decision to remove the wrong influences and desperately turn your attention towards the things that will bring you closer to the Lord. I want you to hear me when I say this. Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Little foxes spoil the vineyard. If you love the Lord with a genuine love, abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. And if you're here this morning, and when you hear those words, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, and you're like, man, that doesn't describe me. I don't even really understand what he's saying there. And I mean that whether you profess to be in Christ or not. Listen to me. If you're honest, you know you're miserable. You know your life is a miserable existence. You are miserable under the lordship of sin. You're under the mastery of evil. If you're a, com- a chronic complainer, chronically discontent, if you're a gossip or a slander, if you're defined by the very sins that, that, we, that are described here in Ephesians 4, the ones that you're to turn away from and instead pursue the good that is in Christ, the, the truth is, listen to me, you're under the judgment and the wrath of God. Whether you want to agree with it or not, that's the statement of Scripture. You're His enemy. I would ask you this morning, Would you be delivered from this present evil age? Would you? Would you be delivered from slavery to sin and and the mastery of evil? Would you be at peace with God? Would you? You can be. You can be. And it's not by just turning over a new leaf or behavior modification. That's not what we're talking about this morning. That's not what we preach in this church. That's a dead gospel. That's a gospel that leads to hell. We preach the gospel of grace that transforms lives. The gospel of grace that transforms a sinner, dare I say it, into a saint. And not the imaginary saints of the Catholic Church, but the true saints of God, holy ones that are set apart to Him by His grace. You can have life. God hates evil. He hates sin. And so He sent His Son into this world to bring an end to the power of sin and to its condemnation. You can be forgiven. You can have forgiveness with God. The Apostle John wrote, listen, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we know God loves. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God hates sin, but He has demonstrated His love for sinners. By sending his son to rescue them. And though you've rebelled against God, though you have loved evil and hated good, God has made a way for you to be reconciled to the holy God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, this evil world corrupted by sin, to do for us what we could never do, to live a life of perfect obedience from the heart to the commands of God and thereby earn the righteousness that we need to be clothed with in order to stand before Almighty God. And then He died 
to pay sin's death and to satisfy the wrath of Almighty God. That's what it means to be a propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of Almighty God against all the sins of everyone who would repent and believe, all of them past, present, and future. He died the death we deserved. And then he was, he, he was raised from the dead on the third day so that we might know that he truly is God's son and that the offer that he gives of eternal life is absolutely true because he's not just a man, he's the God-man. And he will give you the righteousness that you need to stand before Almighty God. He will clothe you with his own righteousness. He will give you forgiveness of your many sins if you will simply with humble honesty, lay down all of your excuse-making and all of your self-righteousness and all of your self-justification and all of the stories and reasons you think that God ought to accept you just the way you are. And you will confess before Him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I was born that way. I have been in rebellion against You. I have rejected You. I have not loved what is good and hated what is evil. Rather, I have loved evil and I've hated what's good. And I know I deserve judgment. But the scripture tells us that you, Lord, came to save sinners. And I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And if you will surrender yourself and repent of your sins and turn away from them and turn to Christ and believe that He is the only way of salvation given by Almighty God Himself, you surrender your soul to him and believe in him with all that's in you, you will be saved. But it begins with humble honesty. Are you humble enough to admit your need? Well, there's a lot to consider from this text. Isn't it amazing? Just, just a, few ver- a few words. Abhor evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's, you could easily pass that by unless compelled by the Spirit of God really think about what those words mean it's not only for us to think about what those words means it's about us responding to those words this morning so let's do that let's pray father i'm grateful to you for your holy word and for the teaching of your truth and for how it impacts us directly lord i'm thankful for these searching words we don't want just an easy you know cotton candy you know soft word that means nothing we want to hear the words of the living god and so we're grateful lord that you would meet with us and that you would give us this word and i pray that by your grace what's been spoken this morning is pleasing in your sight i pray now for these that are here this morning pray that you'd give them father a unction of your spirit to respond to these words in the way that they should right now they wouldn't put them off They'd really think about these words and and what it means for them personally. Not pitchforking them to somebody else and how that person needs to think. There's enough on our own plates, each one of us, to deal with these words. So I pray that you would bring them to bear powerfully in our hearts and in our minds right now. And I pray that you would move us by your spirit to respond in a way that is pleasing in your sight and brings glory to your holy name. I pray for those that are here that don't know Christ that, Father God, you would draw them irresistibly. That, that Lord, even now, you have, you'll regenerate their hearts. You've already regenerated them, perhaps during this service, that they will respond in faith to Christ. Help us all to respond in humility and in humble honesty before you this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.